Pop Health Podcast is a public service of 24-hour home care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Pop Health Podcast as we look into the future of healthcare post-pandemic and during the pandemic here in 2021. Today's special guest is Kim McCoy-Wade, who is the director for California's Department of Aging. In today's special episode, Kim helps reveal more information about the 2021 reveal of California's Master Plan on Aging. In 2019, Governor Newsom stated that California basically had to create a clear plan to deal with the growing population, which by 2030 will be over 10 million individuals aged 60 and over. In today's episode, Kim talks about the five bold goals of the master plan, including goal number four, where we talk about the caregiver workforce and what a quality caregiver job would look like, which of course is my uh, wheelhouse and my day job. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Feel free to check out other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting us at pophealthpodcast.com, checking us out on YouTube, or of course, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, and other podcast channels out there. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. Kim, thanks so much for joining the show today. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned back. So uh, for those of you that uh, may not listen to every episode, and I know not everyone listens to every episode, uh, I was fortunate. Uh, Kim was actually on the show for about 10 minutes. We did a show back, I think, November of 2019 when we're still allowed to meet in person. And um, actually, Nelson, um, Shea, am I getting that right? Uh, On the the PR side, who actually helped eventually set this up as well. Um, was nice enough to uh, bring you over before you had a flight out to talk about what I, to be upfront, I didn't even know about the master plan on aging. Shame on me for working in my day job is in home care. Um, so I really appreciate you uh, coming back. We were going to do this in person, but uh, obviously times have changed. So uh, let's get to know you a little bit, Kim. We didn't really get to do that last time. We'd like to start off the show getting to know a little bit about the guest, and then we'll jump into the master plan. So with you, Kim, uh, can you share something with us, with the audience, uh, something that might surprise the audience about you, something outside of the workplace? Uh, I don't think this will be a huge surprise to a lot of people, but um, I spend a fair amount of time doing uh, crossword puzzles and all kinds of puzzles. Uh, the new one that I've been into is the spelling bee. I don't know if you've seen this puzzle uh, where you do anagrams and make words. So um, I, uh, it's, it's one of my kind of favorite ways to uh, to take my mind off of everything, uh, but I, I probably isn't su- to su- too surprising to people because it is kind of the same thing we do at work and try to put put the pieces together and rearrange and, and solve puzzles. But I am definitely a puzzler in my free time. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, I know a little bit about your background, which we'll jump into in a moment. And uh, definitely in today's world, I think that's not common. But I I can see why that would work for you. Do you do that on your phone, or do you actually use pen and paper? No, uh, on my phone. Definitely okay. digital. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Cool. All right. So let's jump in uh, to get to know you a little bit better, Kim. Tell us about where you grew up. Uh, let's start there. Sure. I grew up um, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I was born in the city and uh, raised in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, my dad worked for the federal government, uh, kind of answered John F. Kennedy's call, uh, asked not what the government can do for you, but what you can do for government, and uh, went there. And my mom was a Head Start preschool teacher. And uh, both of them were alumni of Peace Corps and VISTA, so public service was just baked into my bones uh, from the get-go. Okay, that makes sense. I was, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is when did you decide to get into public service and things like that? But let's actually start, as you grew up uh, there on the East Coast in the D.C. area, one thing uh, that you did was actually go into law. And so when 
when did you decide that you wanted to uh, end up getting your JD? Well, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do, uh, most people, and I actually thought I might be a teacher. Um, I did spend some time as a camp counselor and kindergarten teacher and really, um, I really loved it. But uh, the more I went to uh, learn more about the world and just saw so many things that to me didn't seem right were wrong. Um, everything from sexual harassment at work, I uh, definitely came of age during the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas uh, era. Uh, I went to a high school that was named for a segregationist. Uh, with a Confederate soldier in my hometown at the the town square. So I definitely was aware that things weren't right and that lawyers were a big part of how things can get made right. So that's what got me to law school was a chance to to fight for justice. Okay. Wow, that's great. Uh, We share the camp counselor uh, background. Now, you mentioned kindergarten. You mentioned, was a kindergarten teacher or did you work with kindergarten age kids at uh, prior? I did did both. I did... camp counseling for six-year-olds, and then I also um, had a chance to be a student teacher through some of my high school and college programming, and I always love that age, kindergarten, first grade. Awesome, awesome. My daughter's in second grade, or so uh, I know what you oh, mean. Oh, my son is in second grade right now, so yeah, oh. it's a great age. <laughs> oh, is, he, uh, is he done for the day? Uh, we're recording about 2.15. Is he done with school today, or? Well, he is done with his on-screen time. Whether he is done with his assignments is a whole separate question. <laughs> Well said. That's awesome. Um, Okay. So uh, speaking of school, so you went to Carleton College and I had heard that name before, but to be upfront, I had to look it up and find out that it was in Minnesota and you studied uh, African-American studies. So tell us about the inspiration to go to Carleton and the inspiration behind uh, African-American studies. Sure. Um, Well, part of it was my family is from the Midwest originally. And so returning to the Midwest, um, uh, made sense to me. I did not, I will say I did not fully understand winter until I had lived through four of them in Minnesota. And you will note that I have never done so again. <laughs> so that was hard, but the Midwest was wonderful as a great place to, um, to, to learn and to grow. And I had a good four years at Carleton. Uh, for me, African-American studies really grew out of that same question of uh, when has there been injustice and what has happened to make it right? And the lessons of black history and the black community are really about as we heard at the inauguration speech, perfecting the American dream, repairing the gaps in the American promise. And so I just have found it all so, so instructive and so inspirational to learn from uh, the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement uh, and, and current uh, Black Lives Matter movement continues to really drive how I think about how we make justice for all. That's, that's very interesting. Thank you very much for sharing some light on, or shedding some light on that. Now, um, I hadn't planned to ask this, but Kamala Harris is a Californian. You work in government. Have you had the chance to do any work with her uh, prior to her departure to become the VP? Um, really more in the beginning, um, when she was running for office in San Francisco, I used to live in Oakland. And so as someone who has always supported women running for office, we were at multiple events together whether it was fundraising or uh, her an incredible mentoring of women leaders in the state. So we have been in the same room together for sure. But unfortunately, I did not have a chance to work with her on aging specifically while she was a U.S. Senator, but I'm very excited to work with her on aging and disability. Uh, the administration has been, it's, it's late January, so I think it's a week in office at this point, and they've already announced you know, wonderful civil rights initiatives that will benefit people of all ages and races and abilities. And so we're excited for what's to come. Okay, awesome. So uh, out of school, you, uh, out of Carleton, you uh, then went over to the New York University School of Law. And how did you eventually go from, you know, 
finishing as a lawyer to jumping into uh, CalFresh under uh, social services? Sure, sure. So after um, law school, I really was trying to figure out where to be a lawyer in a courtroom or in a policy room and had some experiences again as a student uh, trying both. Um, and interestingly, there was a summer I was a public defender and I actually spent a lot of the time working on the policy that had drug sentencing laws be different for powder cocaine and crack cocaine, an issue you may remember also. And I really was more drawn to the policy side than the courtroom side. So I have spent my career, I started in Washington, D.C., working on uh, public policy issues around kids and families. Again, even though it wasn't the kindergartner in the classroom, it was um, the kindergartner and the older child. And so I worked on after-school programs and juvenile justice uh, and all, um, and actually uh, gun violence issues and media violence issues, kind of a range of healthy growth and development for kids and families at a group called the Children's Defense Fund, founded by Marion Wright Edelman. Uh, and that was hugely influential. And through that, uh, I began working on food. <laughs> food is certainly a big part of healthy childhood and development. And so um, moved to California about 20 years ago, as much for uh, the beauty and the pace. Working in a government town is wonderful, but working in a non-government town also has its advantages. So I uh, lived in Oakland for 20 years, got deeper and deeper in food policy, first with food banks and then I was very fortunate with Governor Brown to be asked to come in and um, kind of refresh CalFresh was, was, the, was the mission. Yeah. And we, we did that. And part of how we did that was um, kind of repairing a, 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 policy, a policy kind of contradiction in the CalFresh program that had meant older adults and people with disabilities couldn't get CalFresh. They were on SSI. They couldn't get CalFresh. And we were the only state in the nation that was true. Yeah. So. We undid that about two years ago. I just heard that there's now 750,000 older adults getting CalFresh uh, now. Um, but through that, really got to know more of the community and more of the issues. And so when Governor Newsom's team said, how about coming over to work on aging? Um, even though it's uh, the other end of the lifespan from where I began as a kindergarten <laughs> and a teen, teen policy, it really is what it's all about for families, right? It's the whole lifespan and we are we do go through it ourselves and we do go through it with the people we love. Um, so it's actually been um, a surprisingly good fit. Awesome. And for those listening that may not be familiar with CalFresh really quickly, is yeah. that the same as what people might know as like food stamps? Yes, or indeed. Yes, indeed. Food stamps was renamed a few years ago uh, nationally SNAP, but California being California, we put our own spin on it yep. uh, and we call it uh, the CalFresh food program. But it is that EBT card that you swipe to buy groceries and that, you know, for older adults, about $110 a month will go on their card, maybe more. Um, and their families larger would be more um, to buy all kinds of uh, groceries. Awesome. Well, um, growing up and uh, my adult life, my family uh, has benefited from programs like that. So um, it's great to hear that it's thriving and um, doing well and hopefully going strong now that you're over on the aging side. So let's jump into the transition over to helping to build the master plan on aging. So again, when I met you, um, and I can't believe I didn't even know about it, uh, in November of 2019, Governor Brown had an executive order in June of 2019 to help basically develop this master plan on aging. Can you share with us at a high level, what is the master plan on aging? Great. Uh, it is recognizing that the state overall is getting older. We are, uh, we are living longer. California has some of the highest life expectancy in the nation. And that, that, uh, that's changing our families, that's changing our communities, that's changing our workplace, that the older population is more diverse, that 60 is different than 70, than 80, than 90, than 100 plus. 
that we really needed to rethink aging um, altogether. And this was, remind you, this was before COVID. Yeah. Then COVID has hit and has in incredibly challenging and in too often tragic ways uh, really forced us to rethink the aging experience. Um, obviously, we're still in the throes of responding to both uh, the cases and the surge, um, hopefully starting to bring the surge down. And uh, again, that wonderful hope of the vaccines, rolling out more vaccines to, to more people as quickly as we can, particularly 65 and older and course, those living in nursing homes and other residential settings uh, and the workers who care for them. But all of that made us realize the way that we um, think about aging is frankly outdated. Uh, and that California, while we have lots of great programs and leaders and services, kind of uh, the points of light, if you will, all over the state, we didn't really have a vision and a plan to kind of all swim together in the same direction. Um, right. We were lucky, you know, there are places like San Diego has the Age Well San Diego approach and um, Los Angeles has Purposeful Aging Los Angeles. So we had a few examples of what does it look like to really think about aging, not just as, oh, what's your health care or what's the nursing home, but to really think about um, living well across the decades. And so um, that was the charge. And we spent about a year and a half, even through COVID, engaging with hundreds of stakeholders, thousands of public comments, about a dozen legislative roundtables with our legislative partners, a handful of private sector forums, and I'm sure I'm forgetting, uh, oh, of course, Maria Shriver and the Alzheimer's Task Force, a critical, critical partner that we aligned with early on, uh, and came up with this 10-year plan that has a big 10-year vision of five big goals that I know we'll talk about, yep. uh, and but then also has a two-year action plan of things this administration and this cabinet can really dig into over a hundred initiatives that we want to get, that we are getting going on uh, right now. Awesome. And I know the uh, master plan officially rolled out here in January when we're recording. Audience, you may not hear this till February after. Was the original goal um, to have the master plan roll out in January 2021 or did COVID impact that? Oh, absolutely impacted. We originally put the executive order were October 1st. Um, but once we, we paused the COVID work, excuse me, the master plan work in March because of the initial COVID response. So we got a, about a two month extension to yeah. December. But then when December rolled along, quite frankly, we were right in the thick of this terrible surge. And it just wasn't the right time to, to focus on anything um, but the surge um, response. And again, the vaccine beginning. So we were very lucky um, it, to announce in early January because uh, of course, despite, again, the continued focus on COVID, uh, uh, the budget process continues. The governor's budget was announced two days later with multiple investments in master plan. The legislature came back four days later. Legislature's here working on bills. And then, of course, in, in Washington, the new administration has begun work. So we thought it was really important to lay out the California's vision for the 10 years and initiatives for the two years to partner on budget, state bills, and federal action. Makes perfect sense. Uh, you mentioned who was involved. So let's talk about those uh, five bold goals. Can you break down just very briefly what each goal is? Sure, sure. So the first goal is really housing for all ages and stages. And what's important in that, of course, is California does uh, has is a housing crisis right now, and we need a bigger variety of affordable housing. But it's also about kind of really uh, testing our myths about what quote-unquote senior housing is and kind of stretching us. Um, so, for example, multifamily housing, um, accessory dwelling units, a shared housing, 
um, uh, family homes. There's all kinds of things that may make sense. Again, at 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. Uh, I don't think any of us think we live in the same home of the first 50 years of our lives. Why would we the second 50? And so really broadening the definition and really amping um, the supply uh, and affordability and, of course, in community, the transportation, the parks, the climate readiness, the emergency readiness, really about that livable community piece. That's the first one. Makes sense. Uh, before, sorry, Kim, before yeah. we get to uh, uh, goal number two, I apologize. When you when we have the master plan on aging, is there a defined age group that that applies mm -hmm. to? Or? So you just put your finger on something. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, we Yes, in the sense that we often use the, uh, 60 or 65 to kind of show the data projections, right? So that by 2030, a quarter of the state will be over 60 for the first time bigger than under 18. So to show the kind of changing of the state, but know in that there's not some line you cross uh, that all of a sudden, this is when aging begins, right? Yeah. It's not, aging is a process. Aging is different for all of us. Chronological age can be a terrible marker of actually where you are physically, socially, financially. Um, you know, AARP says 50, Older Americans Act says 60, Medicare says 65. So we, we did not pick a winner. There is not a magic number um, that, that uh, there are certain, again, program and policy numbers, but really it reflects the approach that aging is a, is a lifespan issue, is across the, the, uh, the journey across the entire uh, age span. And, and by that, I mean, you'll see in our plan, healthy aging <laughs> begins earlier, right? All the healthy aging habits be begins across your whole life. Uh, so we really don't, we don't, we don't, uh, we didn't pick a number despite discussing it and debating it. Uh, it really is about just having a, a California for all ages as you go to those 60, 70, 80, 90, and over 100 years. Great. Thank you. So again, goal one was housing. Uh, age, what was the, the catchphrase ages or? Uh, um, housing for all ages and stages. Ages and stages. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and then the second one was, um, and this is probably the, the um, in some ways, the meatiest one um, in terms of the initiatives is health reimagined. Uh, and really, there's a couple things happening here you'll see below the headline. Um, first, it's of course, as we get older, many of us do find ourselves spending more time on our health, but we want to make sure health is defined beyond clinical care. And we know so much of good health happens in the home and happens in the community. So what can we do to link health, health uh, care with social care and community care and emotional care. And there's so much wonderful work happening in that um, space. I know insiders, long-term services and supports or home and community-based services are some of the terms we talk about. But I think there's just great leadership happening in California around Medicaid, around Medicare, around community groups, uh, around no wrong door systems, that really it's a, it's a turning point moment on that front. Um, that said, there's also specific issues around uh, aging and healthcare whether it's the need for more geriatric training all across the health system, uh, a, a fresh look at nursing homes, again, coming out of this COVID experience, what can we learn and apply? Uh, and then again, and leadership with former First Lady Maria Shriver, dementia, dementia, particular uh, uh, um, disease of aging. Uh, how are we as families, as communities, as systems um, preventing and then responding to uh, the increasing rates of dementia? Thanks so much, Kim. Let's go ahead and jump into goal number three. Sure. So the third goal uh, is very important in California to be a California for all ages. And this is the inclusion and equity, not isolation. 
this is uh, the issue of you sometimes it's presented as um, living alone, being excluded from um, uh, work, being excluded from community participation. We've certainly seen this with COVID, incredible concern around people being able to have both basic needs met, but also social emotional while we're staying home to stay safe are so important. Uh, it's also around issues of age discrimination, issues of age and race discrimination intersecting and age and disability discrimination. A um, couple initiatives we're really um, looking forward to moving forward. One's around digital divide. Uh, we are working right now with both donations from tech companies and purchased products with our federal uh, COVID stimulus funds to get more devices with broadband, with support out to older adults. We just know that those that connectivity is so critical for whether it's video conferencing or hearing your podcast or talking to your doctor, uh, ordering groceries, attending your church service. Uh, all of these things are, are, are different if you have some connectivity depending on, it could be a smart speaker, it could be a digital pet, it could be a tablet, um, but really bridging the digital divide since that's such a, a key connection. And then the other piece we're looking forward to launch is more of an elder justice kind of coordinating council at the, at the state level. We have a lot, the good news is there's a lot of departments and programs in this space, but that just means there's more on us to kind of connect up uh, and make sure we're applying our best thinking about, about restorative justice and, and family and trauma to these issues uh, and racial justice, quite frankly, that we're really looking at these issues with our best and um, most up-to-date thinking. And so we're really excited to launch a, to, to begin to launch, it's gonna take us a minute to get everyone together on elder justice issues at the same table. So two of, those are two of the initiatives we're most excited about. Okay, awesome. Um, and then let's jump into goal number four. Goal number four is caregiving that works. Uh, and that's, as you can hear, a little bit of a pun on both family caregiving, uh, given that's the number one family and friend, so small f, family of choice caregiving. Yeah. Uh, that's the number one source of caregiving. And many, many people, again, before COVID and during COVID, are, are finding both the rewards of that and also the challenges of that. So how do we support family caregiving just as we've had to ask about childcare, uh, whether it's um, paid family leave, respite care, uh, training, um, all those things that really make family caregiving work uh, over the long haul. And then the other, of course, is the paid caregiving, which is just essential um, that we, you know, there's all kinds of dire studies about how there aren't enough workers for the number of people who need care. And so what are we going to do about that on both sides? How can we um, possibly uh, reduce the amount of workers that need by things like virtual care that could take over some tasks or better support for family care? But really, how can we make this a great job, great pay, great benefits, great rewards, um, you know, how can we really make it a pipeline to other other positions if both coming from family caregiving could bring us to paid giving, paid caregiving could bring us to paid licensed professions, or paid caregiving itself can be a rewarding a lifelong career. And so we just uh, are, we are really looking forward to working with um, our labor agency and our and our full administration on moving forward on some new ideas. Again, pandemic and, and the recession is giving us, and in some ways demanding of us, that we take a fresh look at work and caregiving together and excited about the new federal administration's interest in the caregiving agenda as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely my, uh, my wheelhouse. My day, I mentioned my day, my day job, excuse me, is home care, but it's the non-medical caregiving side. And we are supporting family caregivers all the time. The pandemic, as you probably know, um, a lot of the workforce is not working. 
Um, and that could be by choice because of fear. Um, in my day job, we, we have like a 20% reduction in workforce during the pandemic and we're offering higher pay and, and it's not necessarily working and there's reasons for that. Um, mm -hmm. So one of, the, one of the pieces of goal number four is high quality caregiving jobs. And I know we don't have, you know, I'm not gonna say what's the answer, Kim? How do we fix it today? Um, but I wanted to see like from your lens, like what would high quality mean um, for a caregiver? And, and I'll leave it at that for a caregiving job. Well, would you mind if I asked you first? Because you yeah. are, you. this is your wheelhouse, you just said. Yeah, please. So can you start? And then I, I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, so for me, well, first of all, a quick story. Uh, one of my mom's friends works for the company that's my day job. And she doesn't make a lot of money, but it's a calling to her and she loves it. And um, I don't want to say her name. I don't have her permission. But I can guess that she struggles to provide as much as she she wants for her daughter. Uh, she's able to pay her bills, but I can't say she has a lot of wiggle room. So for me, the way my idea of a solution would be, I, I mean, I, is subsidies or government support or insurance support. And what we're starting to see is uh, CMS has granted health plans, shout out to Scan Health Plan, Anthem, who've chosen to start funding caregiving. So that's helping families who couldn't afford the private pay uh, caregiving, which for the most part, as you know, Kim, caregiving, unless you're on Medi-Cal and part of IHSS, is out of pocket. Mm -hmm. so, but SCAN and Anthem are providing short-term care. So that's a start and that's part of the solution. So my mm -hmm. thought is states like Washington have enacted a long-term care tax and people who disagree with me politically, please don't attack me for this. Uh, I try to stay away from politics on the show, but they've enacted what's known as the Long-Term Care Trust Act. And I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Uh, you're nodding your head. Um, audience, I did give her a heads up, I'd be asking about that. Uh, but they're, uh, they're charging a 0.58% tax to help pay for long-term care. So for me, and again, not to get into politics, that potentially is a solution. Yep. Yep. And now I'll open it up to you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I feel, uh, I'm gratified that um, uh, I think what I think is reflecting on your real experience and expertise. So, which is that wages are absolutely part of the conversation that it, it, the, the, the wages as well as the benefits and the training and the scheduling um, flexibilities, but scheduling reliability uh, so that people can have the income security, right? That we all want, need, deserve. So, but to ask that question, to say that, just kind of begins the conversation. Okay, well, where does that come from? Right? Yeah. Is, that the Medicaid, is that the Medicaid rate, the Medicare rate, the private pay? How does that cost get, or the, or the, oper the operator, the program operator, it does come back to that. And really looking at healthcare um, and where that dollar is going and how we can, I mean, obviously when we need clinical care, we need clinical care. But when other care, home care, community care can provide an outcome, that might be even comparable or better from a health perspective, maybe better from a social emotional, um, there may, uh, and maybe more affordable from in terms of the worker rate, why wouldn't we look at those win-win um, situations for, for everyone? So to your point, okay, how are we gonna get more financing in the system then? How do we get, um, California absolutely is looking at Washington very closely, uh, the, the, their system, um, the advocates worked to get a fiscal study of how to pay for that, that Milman um, produced this summer, 
And so we looked at that. And I think, you know, being um, the California approach was to really try to be as inclusive as possible in terms of both aging and disability and paying in and um, uh, receiving a benefit and portability and lots of kind of inclusive factors. Uh, and it um, led to a price tag and a payroll tax solution that seemed challenging, I think, for almost everybody. I think almost everybody feels like, uh, and certainly I'll speak for the administration, that yeah. a payroll tax, the payroll tax at this time in particular, but in general, is is going to be tough to finance the kind of benefit that was laid out. So that's kind of the hard, tough news that, that the administration and, and the advocates were able to talk about this fall and just say, no question about the definition of the problem. That is the problem. We are all casting about for the solution. And part of what we are hoping to do is, I mean, really, this is a hole in Medicare, if I can just cut to it. Yeah. It's a whole, like your point that Medicaid and California Medi-Cal pays for it and Medicare largely exceptions doesn't. Right. So what we are hoping, and you see in the governor's budget, is there's a proposal for a new first ever state office of Medicare innovation and integration, which is to figure out what are all the Medicare levers we can use right now, whether it's Medicare Advantage or otherwise, to expand access to home, to, to home care yeah. uh, and other community services. So I think there's more California can do with the current um, current setup, and we're looking to other states that have Medicare offices. We understand Virginia, maybe Minnesota. So to just kind of learn about those state state strategies on a federal program, and certainly coming from again this, the food stamp program, I know there are even in federal programs there are state things you can do, uh, and um, we're we're excited to run down that path. But again, the, it's really a hole in the federal program that with the new administration and maybe a new Secretary of Health and Human Services coming out of California, Secretary Becerra. Yeah. Uh, we will really have an opportunity to do with Medicare kind of the, the, the game-changing things that happened with Medicaid under President Obama and the Affordable Care Act. And frankly, California ran with that, right? Yeah. We, I think they have some of the best track record of that federal-state partnership and uh, both policy innovation and then execution and signing up uh, diverse Californians. And so that's my dream, is that we are on the cusp of something big in Medicare which isn't to say the state wouldn't have a role that maybe there isn't a need for some, you know, shorter term benefit like you see in like uh, family leave or unemployment or disability. Uh, that's I don't think that's off the table at all. But I think we want to seize the moment and see if there's a more comprehensive solution we can do in partnership with Washington. Great. And uh, Kim, before we jump to goal number five, you mentioned uh, the Milliman, Milliman, am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, yeah. Report. Is that a publicly available document? Yes, and it is. It, yes, it's on the Department of Healthcare Services website, and I can also give you the, we can get you the link so you can include it in your um, materials as well. All right, Kim, thanks so much for all of that on point number four, my, my favorite topic. So let's jump into goal number five. Sure. So this is affording aging, I think, top of mind for all of us, uh, whether we're thinking about our own aging or people that we uh, love and care for. Uh, and I think we were all really moved by um, Nari Reed, a professor at University of California, Berkeley, talking about downward mobility as we age. And there's just so many reasons for this, right? I mean, part of it is we are living longer. Uh, and so having the savings for 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 can uh, really exhaust so many of us. It's also these healthcare costs we just talked about. Yeah. Uh, it's the housing costs we just talked about for those who don't have a locked in um, property tax and who do want to move and change where they move. Um, that's a huge issue. So how do we bring healthcare costs down as we talked about? How do we make more affordable housing options that are better suited? But then how do we really address these income issues? Um, Social Security, um, both keeping up, but also 
a lot, you know, people who are care workers often didn't get social security or farm workers or other people who have a gap in social security. We want to make sure that people aren't being left behind in ways that have particularly discriminatory impacts for women and people of color. Uh, and we know employer pensions are, are declining and we know private savings are harder than ever. So I really do think, again, California can, um, can really, and has, has taken some leadership role here on making it easier to save for retirement with Cal Savers and Cal Able. Uh, and taking another look at our SSI program, which is that safety net for our lowest income older adults. Um, but ultimately, this is a challenge um, for, for everyone is how does Social Security meet the moment of, of longer years and rising costs? Really quickly, Kim, I know we're uh, running short on time here, but uh, you mentioned the tax for homeowners. What, uh, maybe in a nutshell, what's the current uh, challenge for seniors who own property and their property tax? Well, there's a change. I, I think people know about Prop 19 that passed this fall, which um, makes mobility possible for um, older adults in terms of uh, moving anywhere in the state, which we actually think will be really interesting for people to kind of, again, for so long we've had this um, aging in place might mean staying in the house that you bought 30 years ago for your, for your growing family. And yeah. we hope it kind of opens people's thinking to, is this really the best place for me? Is this really the right home for me for this stage of my life? Um, and so we do think we'll see some mobility, which will help older adults get into the homes that are right for that age and stage and in the, near, near the services, near the supports, maybe near bus lines, uh, things that help them thrive as they age. Um, I think, you know, we also think uh, some of the changes around passing on the property to the next generation might encourage, might help with affordability for other generations. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how we both, again, aging isn't about the whole lifespan. So we want all ages to have affordable choices that meet their needs at that moment. And so to the extent uh, it's now the law and is encouraging people to think about, am I in the right place? Uh, and to the extent it has some other homes that have been maybe not inhabited by that family turnover um, in the community, that might benefit the community as well. So uh, it's definitely a moment um, of, ch of change. Uh, and of course, again, uh, many, many, many of our, our, newing, our newly aging folks are not homeowners at all. And so how do you find housing, secure housing, stay housed uh, in this housing market as you age is uh, one of our greatest challenges with aging. Absolutely. So I know we're uh, running up close to time here. Just a couple more minutes with you. So funding for the master plan on aging. We talked about funding for caregiving, but in general, um, what you mentioned action plans, right? Especially over the next two years. So can you tell with us where is the funding coming for these additional programs and services? Sure. So the governor's budget came out two days after the master plan and had a whole section about advancing and addressing aging. Uh, with many different proposals. Some are cross-cutting, like the initiative to rethink Medicaid has many components, including these home and community-based services. Um, another major initiative around affordable housing has many components, uh, but it does include you know, 250 million to start acquiring uh, residential care facilities to help with people who are homeless or near homeless wow. to have a home you know, and braid together housing and IHSS and SSI and other funding to really support people in home community services. So, you know, taking, again, the market, the only good thing about, you know, hotels have become available and, and the state's been able to purchase those with county and city leadership for people who are homeless. And we're taking that model and doing it 
with um, uh, elder care facilities as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's an opportunity to try to secure some more housing stock. But there are multiple other new targeted initiatives. I mentioned the new Medicare office. I mentioned, I don't think I have mentioned a $17 million uh, investment in Alzheimer's, everything from public education, research, caregiver training, healthcare provider training, and dementia-friendly cities or blue zones, lots of Alzheimer's investment. Also an investment in geriatric um, pipeline. We need more people and more diverse people trained in geriatrics, so working on, on that front. Um, and then there is an important part uh, of all this is also leadership. And so there is a creation of a new position in the governor's office to be a senior advisor on aging, disability, and Alzheimer's. And yeah. then um, a placeholder of about uh, of a few million dollars to kind of strengthen the master plan for aging implementation overall. So we have the policy leadership and the accountability. We'll have an oversight board uh, impact implementing the master plan uh, for aging in California together that will have an annual report on how we doing and frankly, where we need to uh, course, course correct. I'm sure there'll be things that we move ahead on, things that we don't, and things that we take a second look at and go, you know what, we have new facts or new information and we're gonna take a shift. So that impact committee will help. And again, with the existing all cabinet, all 10 secretaries cabinet work group and advising this plan. So it is a living and evolving document. Great, and I'm glad you said that. I read a quote from uh, Mark Galley, Secretary of the California Health and Human Services, and he mentioned that the plan is nimble. So it's nice to know that this is not set in stone um, and that it will be a, uh, I think you said, living and breathing or evolving document. So that's great. Uh, my last point is the Master Plan on Aging has what's called the local playbook. And I had a chance uh, prior to this recording to kind of just play around with it. And there's a bunch of links and a bunch of resources. Can you talk briefly, what is a local playbook? What does it mean? Why is it important? Sure. So one of the ways California succeeds, if not the way, is when we all rise together, all regions, all counties, all cities. And so we think part of the, the state master plan for aging is more county and community plans that board of soups and city councils have come together and say, this is what it means for us in this community. And again, San Diego has led the way, Los Angeles has led the way, um, but we have most of the state, um, and, and frankly, many cities and counties have done um, a, a parallel process with AERP, the uh, livable community. All of that's great. It's all pushing in the same direction. There is no one way to do this, but we really would like to see more local uh, leaders uh, think about what's happening in their demographics. We have some counties in the foothills that already are ahead of us. They already have more older adults and they're thinking about this. Uh, we already have issues of climate change and where nursing homes are located um, for front and center for people. So the playbook is meant to be a bit of a toolkit to help local leaders um, think about where they are. Have they already started? Are they partly down? Do they need to get started? To, and frankly, to create a community among those local leaders so they can learn from each other and also help the state continue, as I mentioned, in that living and breathing and evolving cycle, uh, learn what's really needed and what's best. So more to come on that. That's really a big priority these first uh, two years is, is really kind of create, I shouldn't say creating, it's already been here, but strengthening the network of aging and disability leaders, both our connections to each other and then also our advancement together. Um, I've currently, I've been using the, the school of fish metaphor uh, we have a lot of wonderful, beautiful fish in California, and we're trying to get us all uh, swimming in the same direction. We'll go further, faster together. 
Awesome, Kim. Well, we went through a bunch of information very quickly. Uh, we know for you listeners out there, um, you probably want to follow up on on much of what this um, episode was all about. So, Kim, where's a good starting point online uh, for the Department of Aging? Is you just Google the California Department of Aging, or, or what would that site be? Well, I certainly hope your search takes you there, but it is aging.ca.gov. And right at the top, it will tell you to take you to the master plan, which we think is um, really beautifully designed and engaging. And there's a web page and there's a print document if you want to print it out. Uh, the data dashboard for aging we haven't even talked about is one of the ways to interact and be um, to uh, see where we're doing, how we're doing. And also you can sign up and get email updates for webinars. We have one coming up on um, uh, serving African-American elders uh, by and for um, uh, professionals in the aging field in the black community. And we're super excited about that ongoing series. So really stay connected is our, my main ask to everybody. Awesome. Well, Kim McCoy-Wade has been our guest, folks. She is the director of the California Department on Aging. She's also known to be a camp counselor, mom, a nutrition expert, all that good stuff. Um, and again, Kim, really appreciate it. Uh, I did a bad job preparing Kim that this would be on video, so I appreciate you uh, jumping on video as well. This will be on YouTube for those of you listening. Feel free to check us out on YouTube. Also want to give a quick shout out to Nelson Shea back November 2019. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have the chance to make this happen with Kim. Thank you so much. Adam Willoughby and uh, Laura Brown. Am I missing anybody that's helped put this together from what you know, Kim? I think that's the team who's helped you, but I always have to shout out Amanda Lawrence, who is our Master Plan for Aging Project Director. So thank you for letting me do that, Gavin. You're welcome, Amanda Lawrence. Awesome shout out. Again, folks, uh, Kim McCoy-Wade, Director at the California Department of Aging, has been our guest. Thanks so much for joining, Kim. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.